1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jimmy Turner, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. How do you pivot?
1: How do you leave behind all you know and try something completely different? I struggled with these questions throughout my career in medicine. Shortly after leaving my training, I knew deep down in my bones that I had other callings, other professions that I wanted to pursue. But I had spent not only hundreds of thousands of dollars, but also nearly a decade of my life becoming a doctor. I wasn't skilled or knowledgeable about anything else. Or so I thought. My escape came in waves. Sometimes in the form of side hustles by providing medical consulting to businesses or the legal profession, other times in entrepreneurship when I started my own concierge practice. But it was only with financial freedom that I truly gave myself permission to pursue that which I was truly passionate about, writing, podcasting, public speaking. The problem is, however, that many of us are not financially independent or still have a need for good-sized salaries. The question then remains the same. How do you pivot? How do you leave behind all you know and try something completely different? Jimmy Turner is a practicing anesthesiologist and co-founder and CMO of ATTEND, a financial platform for physicians by physicians. He is also the author of The Physician Philosopher's Guide to Personal Finance and Determined How Burned Out Doctors Can Thrive in a Broken Medical System. He is also the host of the Money Meets Medicine podcast. Jimmy Turner, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Jimmy, one of the things about the Attend platform and app is that it helps physicians with disability insurance. I feel like the service has a more personal meaning for you. Tell us why.
0: Yeah, no, that's super excited to be back, Jordan, and happy to, to tell my disability insurance debacle. So yeah, when I was a fourth year med student, my wife and I, we had our first kid. She's now 12, she's in 7th grade which is absolutely insane. And actually my my son just turned 10 yesterday the day before we're recording this. And when we had her, Grace, we decided we want to be adults, you know, do adult like things like, you know, get disability insurance, and life insurance, that sort of thing. And actually at the time I was just planning on getting term life insurance so if something happened to Kristen or happened to me or both that, you know, the other and our child would be taken care of. And I am 100% completely financially illiterate at this point in my life. And so Ended up approaching a uh, basically a brother of a medical student classmate of mine, and said, "Yeah, sure, we can get you term life insurance, but you should also get disability insurance." Now, again, I know nothing about money; I don't make any income. This makes zero sense to me, but I'm like, "Hey, you're you're the pro; you you know about this stuff. You're you know a financial advisor slash insurance agent." And so, long story short, I've gotten a central tremor. I've got an ADHD diagnosis. I end up getting denied by this insurance company. I didn't think it was a huge deal at the time, but when you get to medical training, there's something called the guaranteed standard issue policy where they don't look into your medical history at all. It's basically, quote unquote, guaranteed. That's why it's called that. So long as you haven't been disabled and you haven't been denied. And so since I got denied as a fourth year medical student, to this day, I can't get disability insurance. I would argue for physicians. That's number one financial task because you know you teach people about investing and you know paying down debt and a whole host of other financial topics on the show. But if you don't have an income, Honestly, none of that matters. And so, and and physicians are kind of uniquely positioned. I think, you know, it's really interesting. I don't think a lot of people know that 50% of the disability insurance market is just physicians and 80% of doctors have disability insurance. And so it's a huge need. We know we need it. I completely goofed it up in part because of my financial literacy and in part because an insurance agent was trying to earn commission off of me. So disability insurance is very near and dear to my heart and big passion of mine to make sure that people are getting the help they need and the education they need. So they don't make the same mistake that I did.
1: I had no idea that physicians made up such a huge portion of the disability policies. One of the reasons for disability, right, is if you become injured and you can't work. But part of that, too, a lot of times we want disability so that even if we go into a different profession, right, if we're not able to work as physicians, we can do something else you and I are funny. Both of us, in a sense, started as physicians, but the something else is what we spend a lot of our time doing nowadays. Tell me about your dreams growing up. I mean, at some point you said, I'm going to become a physician and that's a huge undertaking. Did it ever occur to you that there would be other things professionally
0: you'd want to do besides being a doctor? No, absolutely not. I actually remember I had friends in college and I went to a super, super small school, 600 students total. It's called Erskine, middle of nowhere, South Carolina. And I'm at Erskine and I've got friends that are business majors and I'm thinking at the time like, man, like what a boring major, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I double majored in chemistry and in philosophy. I didn't understand it, you know, and hilariously now I, I actually love business and I'm in business. We'll talk about that. I'm sure. But, you know, for me growing up, it was a variety of things that I wanted to do. At one time it was forensics. At one time it was astrology, you know, like it was kind of a smattering of things. I've always been interested in just a wide variety of things. You'll come to learn that that's a, a theme in my life that I honestly, at the time, didn't recognize. I just knew that I liked learning about a lot of things. And that, in fact, learning itself was probably my favorite thing to do. And so, you know, I got to college. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I don't remember. I know a lot of people have this like pivotal moment when they're like that. That is when I decided to become whatever I become. Right. right. You know, it might be, you know, an educator, it might be a doctor, a lawyer, it could be any other entrepreneur, you know, whatever you decided to go into. I don't remember having that pivotal moment. I just remember medicine making sense, you know, as an option for me. I knew that I liked science. I knew that people were encouraging me to consider it. I don't really remember having that huge experience. Now, looking back, it makes a lot of sense. So my dad was shot in a hunting accident 5 years before I was born. Has, you know, CRPS chronic regional pain syndrome. I grew up around that my entire life. I saw what good doctors looked like. I saw what really terrible doctors looked like. And I think at some point, maybe in the back of my brain, there was this idea that I wanted to help people in the good way. You know, I wanted to really advocate for patients. I wanted to take care of them in their moments of need. And because of my dad's experience, you know, I I was able to kind of frame that to some extent. But, you know, I grew up, you know, with my dad constantly going to the doctor. You know, it's amazing to this day he can walk, but got shot tons of tons of damage, you know, a lot of neurologic damage. And so my dad used cane from the moment that I was born and I experienced the medical system that way. So I think somewhere in the back of my brain, it was kind of there. And then like, you know, when I got to college, it kind of became just like, it just made sense, but it wasn't like a natural, like, man, like pivotal moment, massive thing happened in my life. And interestingly, because of that process, I didn't know anything about medicine, right? I didn't know that the USMLE, like the step exams, the you know standardized exams, the doctors have to take. I didn't know that they were a thing. I knew I how to take the MCAT and, you know, get into medical school. I didn't know about the the examinations you take in medical school to get to residency. I didn't really understand what residency was. I'd shadowed some doctors, you know, of course, to get that experience. But I literally kind of went in with, you know, a lot of na- naivete. Like I, I really was ignorant about the process. But it just kind of made sense. I don't know if that, I don't know if that makes sense explaining it now. But it, there was not like this huge like light bulb moment.
1: So what we're generally talking about is how you pivot, how you go from spending a lot of time or money, learning a profession, and then at some point in your career decide that it's time to move on. You and I are physicians and a big problem with physicians is burnout, but we are not the only ones, right? You see this in lawyers and accountants and you see it in all sorts of professionals. Do you think it was burnout that eventually made you decide to start looking towards these other activities like
0: business? Yeah, I think it was a huge part of it. You know, for for me, it came down to a lack of autonomy. And I talk about that, you know, In a lot of places, my book included, but you know, like I just didn't feel like I had professional autonomy. I'd I'd really checked off all of the boxes, right? So I was, you know, class and student body president in medical school. I was one of two co-chief residents. You know, won a bunch of awards. Was publishing more than anybody at my rank. Checked off all of the boxes. But what I really wanted to do is to become a program director because I love advocating for residents. I care very deeply about their health and their wellness, and I wanted to to pursue that opportunity professionally. And it got. Closed to my face, you know, four times, not once, but I got passed up four times for a position. And so it became very clear to me at some point that that was not going to be an opportunity that was going to be available to me. Now, I'd started a business before this. And, you know, I think part of that, to be honest with you, is that personal finance at the time and to some extent still today is considered a taboo topic. Right. There are people like you and me that are very comfortable discussing it, but there are a whole host of other people that to this day, you know, just makes them queasy. And so the idea of having somebody that has an interest in that topic being involved in, you know, resident education, you know, made people, let's just say a little, a little uneasy. And so, yeah, for me, it came down to, okay, well, I love being on the journey. I love accomplishments. I I am an accomplishment junkie. And so because of that, accomplishments in medicine, in terms of academic medicine, which is what I do, I still do it two days a week, you know, that just wasn't going to happen anymore. That mountain had an impasse that, that I could not control. And so for me, the pivot came because I was getting burned out in medicine, in part because of those professional challenges and struggles, and in part because medicine is just insanely broken, you know, and so I pivoted because there was no way forward and I needed something else to serve people and help people and, you know, really become passionate about something else. Now, that journey did start a little bit earlier than that pivot happened. But for me, it was it was really just I needed a path forward and there wasn't one.
1: We're going to spend most of our time talking about your current business, Attend. It's an app and it's a platform. We'll get into that in a moment. But the first thing you pivoted to, or at least that I know of, was writing about personal finance. How did you give yourself permission to do that? Because this is something I really struggled with. I often told myself, you know, this is not something that you do to make money or for a living. This is not something as serious as being a doctor. It was more of a hobby. Was there a moment where you kind of stepped aside and said, no, this is a real thing that I should spend my time doing?
0: Yeah, I think early on, I'd I'd always decided that I wanted it to be a business. And, you know, when people hear that, they're like, oh, you just want to make you know money. It's, you know, grifting or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And, And for me, that wasn't the reason why. The reason was that I knew that if I could build this business and grow it and put more money back into the business that I could serve and help more people in an area that was not being served, you know, in in the way that I wanted to serve it. I've always married financial independence with burnout, right? And in fact, the tagline on my website at one point was fighting burnout with financial independence. And so, you know, that that wellness aspect wasn't really being talked about a ton in this space at the time. And so, you know, I was like, "Hey, you know, there's there's a unique need for this kind of slant, you know, this niche within a niche." I really enjoyed talking about it, writing about it. You know, and so so because that need existed, you know, I never really had to give myself permission, to be honest. You know, it just kind of became like, a, hey, this is what people need. And because people need this, I want to serve that need. I, I've always enjoyed writing, although I am dyslexic. I cannot spell. And so thank God for Grammarly and autocorrect. But, you know, otherwise blogging would have been a very long slog. And in fact, I still had issues with that because, like, you know, people would make fun of me. I'd write an article, and you know, I'd say, you know, the the role of somebody in their job, right? And except for, you know, I would spell R O L E and R O L L like interchangeably, as if they're the same word. And so, you know, that's the shift in podcasting became very natural at some point because I, I I don't have to spell behind a microphone. But you know, I I just saw a need. I wanted to write. I enjoyed writing. I love ideas. I love you know the process of of putting things out into the world. And like you it turned out that I love content creation. So I'd write three blog posts a week and I actually looked forward to it. Now, at some point, it did become a bit of a job, you know, having to put three blog posts out every week and coming up with content to do that. But yeah, when I first started, I really enjoyed it. And so part of it was serving other people. And part of it was just that, you know, for me, I just really liked the process of putting, you know, pen to paper, if you will, and, and getting my ideas out there. Although when I look back at those first posts now, I'm like, I cringe. <laughs> they're, they're rough.
1: I want to you know, just spend a moment talking about this idea of making it a business because I feel like for me, and I hear this a lot, when you go out and you start doing these things you like to do and you pivot, yes, the idea of, of making it into a business is, is alluring because you want to be able to replace some of your time doing something maybe you don't like with doing something you do like more. But it also makes it seem, I want to say professional, but there's an added portion to it when you're making money doing it that it almost makes it feel more real or more reasonable. Did you have that feeling like I need to at least show some returns so that I can prove to other people or prove to myself that it's worthwhile to do these activities?
0: Yeah. So I think more and more it was about proving it to my wife. You know, so I, I, was, I was working 55, 60 hours a week and then working another 15 or 20 on this blog and i remember walking down the golf course and telling my my best friend mike that i was going to start a blog and he was like that's great man go for it and my wife was like why i don't like i don't understand and, and so it started and i remember sitting on the couch coming up with the name for the website which hilariously now that i know a little more about branding maybe i wouldn't have called it the physician philosopher because no one can spell it no one can say it it's like tough to put on a keyboard but my wife was a teacher loved alliteration i was a doctor and a philosophy major but so for her i think that at, at some point, it became like, hey, this is good for him. Like, you know, this is an outlet. This is a way for him to get out of his head, which I spend way too much time in. And the other part of it was like, no, but like, I mean, it would be nice to like bring in a little bit of income. And you mentioned something there about like replacing some of your income to, you know, be able to have some of that flexibility. And for me, that is very much what it became. Like, I saw opportunities after, you know, been out for six or 12 months, started to gain a little bit of traction and the opportunity to be able to have some flexibility for medicine, which, At this point, the writing was kind of on the wall. I was starting to see my my career transition and shift. And so that flexibility was massive for me. And it was well before I got to financial independence. In fact, I'm still technically not financially independent. Now, I am pretty financially free from medicine at this point. You know, I, I could certainly reduce our expenses and live off the money that I make in other endeavors now. Now, I don't make as much as, you know, as an anesthesiologist doing these things, but I make enough where, you know, we could make it work. And, and that financial freedom to make all of this a choice, I choose to practice anesthesia a couple of days a week. I choose to, to do the other, you know, stuff that I do another three days a week. Like that, that was very freeing for me and gave me back that sense of autonomy that I'd been missing. But it it absolutely, my wife kind of needed to see that there was a potential for this to, to provide some sort of benefit other than me just spending 20 hours a week on my computer.
1: So you mentioned that you pretty much work as an anesthesiologist about two days a week. The rest or most of the rest of your time is now spent on a startup called Attend. Tell us about this startup. What is it and what does it do?
0: Yeah, so Attend is, you know, if you want to think about the big, broad picture of what someday it will become and is becoming, I should say, is a comprehensive platform for physicians, you know, where where we basically build the entire thing on trust. We want to do the right thing for people. And, you know, you can think about this in any profession, right? Like you want to have something that is, is legitimately doing the right thing. And I had a ton of, ton of experiences that were validated over and over and over again where the financial industry wasn't doing the best thing for people. And uh, in fact, when I was a fourth year medical student, they brought in a, a, a firm to talk to us and, and quote unquote, teach us about personal finance. They were taking email addresses. It felt a little slimy, but I know nothing about it. I didn't put my email address down. But the the firm three years into my residency, the CEO of that firm ended up getting thrown in jail for fraud. And so, like, I started finding out pretty quickly that, you know, like the financial industry isn't really like a lot of bad apples. It's kind of a bad tree in a lot of ways. Like, you got to really find the good people in this space. And there are some. There are a lot of really good people, but you do kind of have to find them. And so for me, it made sense that there needed to be a brand that doctors knew they could trust, they could come inside of this brand. And that we would provide all the services within the brand itself as opposed to outsourcing. Cause there are, you know, there are models out there where people bring people in through blogs or podcasts and what have you, and then outsource to, to let's say, you know, recommended lists of people. But then you kind of have to go through that process again. Like which of these 10 insurance agents do I trust? And instead, we wanted to be able to have this, this company that people could come into, know that they could trust it, and then work within that company, never have to leave the brand. So in a lot of ways it's kind of like the USAA of physician finance so instead of serving military members we're serving physicians and to start out yeah we're helping with disability insurance our our you know insurance agents are paid a flat fee so we get rid of that conflict of commission that's an example of how we're trying to build trust we help with student loans you know and then we're going to branch out from there and and you know create a bunch of other service lines that doctors need and then eventually the the grand vision is to extend that to the entire medical profession right to go to app's and nurses and you know medical technologists and scrub techs and everyone else that works in medicine and provide services to them as well.
1: So again, we're physicians, but I want to broaden this out. How are you, how do you go from being a busy professional, making money, doing what you were trained to do to all of a sudden becoming a co-founder of a startup? Tell me about how that came about with you and how you entered kind of the startup world because it's a very different feeling than, for instance, practicing medicine.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's entirely different uh, and probably the biggest difference in this world compared to medicine is uh, a lack of security, right? So there's tons and tons of risks. So this, this is venture capitalism. So when you say a startup, this is a company that is backed by uh, venture capitalism. And so, you know, the company costs money to spend as the company spends that money to build the idea. There is a natural amount of cash that's spent every month and it, you're basically racing against the clock. You have to either raise more money or prove the idea before you run out of cash that is very different than medicine where, you know, it's a very secure income, right? So making that transition from, you know, physician to blogger to, you know, venture capital-backed startup co-founder, you know, was was quite a journey. And, and honestly, I think for me, part of the hardest part, redundancy department there, was to, <laughs> you know, really get used to risk, right? And, and like the idea that failure is okay, because like, you know, coming from a, a lot of careers, including medicine, a lot of us have a hard time with failure and and making that transition was challenging for me because I tend to be a perfectionist. You know, I didn't know how to fail and I didn't realize success was on the other side of that failure. But for me, the the opportunity to basically take a risk and looking back, you know, it's a little bit of that regret framework, framework that, you know, sometimes, you know, Jeff Bezos will, will throw out there or like other people where I didn't want to look back and say, you know what, I didn't take a shot at that because I was worried it wasn't going to work out you know and and so for me I wanted to say like hey no you know what I threw myself I'm man in the arena style and you know I'm getting you know blood and you know on my face and sweat and I'm toiled but at the same time like I gave it a go and and there's no guarantee right you know I hope pretend exists 5 years from now but you know who knows right it's 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 hard to say
1: was this an idea you had or did someone come to you with the idea and say hey Jimmy come help me co-found this this business how did it come about exactly
0: yeah, so really good question and you know in the venture capital space there are two different models. So one is where you know you and I Jordan we come up with an idea, we decide to split it 50/50 as co-founders. You know, and you can think of examples, right? So Facebook, Tesla, you know, things like this that basically came up with an idea and then they approached a VC firm and said, "Hey, we've got this idea, we've thought about it a little bit, we've kind of got a business model, but we need some capital to get this idea off the ground." And so they will give you capital to do that. And then your job is to get it off the ground. And if you do, then you're going to go raise more money. So you're going to take your pre-seed money and you might go get seed money and then you might go get series A money. So there's names for all of these things that I'm not going to bore people with. But basically, your job is to you know build the company, costs money, and your job is to get to that next milestone before you run out of cash. So that is, let's say, the more traditional model for venture capitalism. The other model is it's called incubation. And so that's where the idea is started at a venture capital firm. The venture capital firm puts up money. They have somebody probably in residence at the VC firm. That person is responsible for hiring the people for the idea. They go out and find them, and then they build the idea with the money that the VC firm put in itself up front. Obviously, it's the VC's idea in that situation. So they own equity or you know, foundership, if you will, in the company from the get-go. And so with that model... It's it's an idea that's already in place, and so that second model is what happened with me. Someone approached me through an introduction and uh, and said, "Hey, you know, we've got this idea, and so we want to chat with you about you know your involvement in this." And so we started chatting, and I made it very clear pretty quickly that, look, you know, I practice medicine, I'm running this business called the Physician Philosopher, and this sounds great. I love the idea, but I can't afford to do all three things. And so very much, you know, Chris Voss, Don't Split the difference style, just kind of pointed out the problem to them. They're like, well. You know, what if we made it make sense for you just to come on board with attend and you know you could kind of put the physician philosopher on pause, right? And I was like, that sounds great. Let's discuss how that's gonna work. So negotiation started, conversation started, and you know, six months later I was a co-founder and chief medical officer at attend, but it was it was through an incubation style, which I would say is is not the traditional way VC normally works.
1: So a big part of the platform is obviously the attend app. I think a lot of us, especially in the non-startup app world don't even understand how that comes to be so tell me a little bit about the process i assume that they didn't actually have an app built yet when you came on board
0: no you know i've never tried the like you know there are services out there that make you know building an app easy so in my mind i like picture like the wordpress of apps where like you just kind of plug and play for those that don't blog that's you know a website builder basically and and so you know we had developers in-house build the app and so you're talking about software engineers that code and uh, and are just brilliant human beings, and so they built the app. And then as we built it, you know, there's this product design that goes in place, like, "Hey, this is what we want it to look like. This is the functionality we want." And then you kind of pass that idea off to the software engineers, who then make it a reality. Which to me is just amazing. Like, I I don't understand like you know app architecture and like the ones and zeros, and you know, I have never hard coded anything in my life. And so they actually help with that process. Now doing it that way is. Really expensive. I mean, build, building an app with hard coded, you know, stuff. But there's some intellectual property there. It does protect you a little bit. It makes it a little bit harder for people to to build the app. But when it comes to apps, it's actually really interesting. And I, I learned this whole new language, right? Where you have like, you know, in app browsing. So like, you're basically pulling up, you know, you can imagine like Safari or Google Chrome inside the app, and like it looks like you're still inside the app, but you're not really. And then the other thing is called an API, which is basically you borrow a partnerships they built aggregation that's one of the tools that's going to be coming out so the ability to see all of your accounts in one place kind of be the central hub the central you know location where you can look into your personal finances and and that aggregation is is built by another company that then we incorporate into our app right and so those are called apis and and those are two things that i didn't even really recognize but now when like i'm using an app i can actually see like Which one of those two things is going on? Like, is this native? Like you built it yourself. Am I doing in-app browsing through another partnership or an API? And, And so now it's like, I notice those things, but as a consumer, you'd never notice. Like you just think you're doing everything within the same app that was built by that one team.
1: So you're talking about like the first six to 12 months, you've been hired. All you know is being a physician and then maybe working for yourself with the physician philosopher, but all of a sudden you were in this VC backed company were you already aware of the burn rate? Like coming in those first few months, you're like, oh, we're getting an app. We're getting this all together. You're learning all this new stuff. Were you already cognizant of the fact that you're already burning money and there's like a clock ticking?
0: Yeah. You know, someone explained it to me. So the same guy actually that I pitched, you know, the physician philosopher to, I'm playing golf with that one day. His, one of his family members is the head of a VC firm. Now I I thought I had an idea of what venture capitalism was before this experience. And it turns out it's, nothing like what i expected. <laughs> and so very very different world but you know i'm talking to him his name's hernando and, and you know my like, hernando like i have all these questions and so he was explaining it to me and and that was part of negotiating with a vc firm for me to come on board right is that there was some urgency to that conversation because they do have a cash burn there is a ticking clock in the time you know in the background and so in order to get this team together there's kind of a requirement to to do that as quickly as you can And so, you know, that provides stress, you know, when you're working in a startup, because you got to get it done before the clock hits zero. But, you know, I I understood the concept, you know, obviously the reality of it and how quickly that, you know, that would or wouldn't happen was not something I was privy to on the outside, you know, but it was, it was definitely a really interesting concept. And I'll be honest, like I love accomplishments. I love creating stuff, you know, content creation, that sort of thing. I I kind of like having my back against the wall. Probably makes sense why I chose to become an anesthesiologist you know, I, I, I very early that I actually thrive in those situations and I, I become extremely productive. You give me a deadline, I'm going to get stuff done. If you don't, I will procrastinate until the, until the world ends. And so I actually liked the idea of coming into that sort of environment and, and, you know, kind of put me, put in a pressure cooker, if you will.
1: You mentioned, and I have to ask that working with a VC was nothing like you thought it was, or it wasn't anything like you imagined before. Just quickly, what were the kind of your major misconceptions walking in the door?
0: Yeah, you know, I I kind of thought about it from like a, you know, let's say an investment background, right? So, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of diversified low cost index funds and, you know, just the broad diversification of that and, you know, the, the simple, you know, simplicity of it and leaving it alone and just all of the psychological and behavioral finance pieces that come with that that make it very appealing. And, uh, and so, you know, I'd heard of angel investments, I'd heard of venture capitalism, you know, kind of seemed like something that was only accessible to, you know, let's say institutional investors and, you know, ultra wealthy people. But the cool thing about it, and, you know, it's a little bit different than like, let's say you're like, hey, I'm going to research stocks and I decided that, you know, the Cape and, you know, all of these other indicators for, you know, Google were, you know, led me to believe that I should invest in this company, right? And and you're really just kind of Googling and, and ironically... And, uh, you know, reading about, you know, the company, but then like in angel investing and in the VC world, you actually get like an inside glimpse of like, who's running the company. You get to know those people, like, where are they going? What is the vision? Is this something you're passionate about, you know, providing investments to so that you can see this idea grow? Now the risk is massive, right? 80 to 90% of startups fail. And so you, you are in a sense trying to hit a home run, which, you know, from the last six years of let's say investment teaching, I would, you know, highly encourage people not to do, you know, but like it, it, now it's like, I just, the passion with which this community exists full of entrepreneurs that are literally trying to change the world. Like they are trying to solve a problem. They see a pain point. And they're like, hey, I can come up with a potential solution and they're doing everything they can to be that 10 or 20% of people that end up becoming, you know, Airbnb or they end up becoming Instagram or Facebook or, you know, these other companies that, that have made it out of the space. And, you know, it, it is, I don't know. It's just really appealing that passion, that fervor, that, you know, that, that really raw like emotion that people have to solve these problems to help other people, knowing that there's an 80 to 90% chance to fail. And so for me, like, I I really, really respect that now being on the inside, it takes a certain kind of person to be able to, you know, potentially put one, two, three, four years of work in and see something fail, right? And see it fail badly, potentially, you know? So I've, I've really, really enjoyed. The community, the people, networking in the VC world is massive. Like they have these events. Most of them live in New York City or San Francisco. That's a thing, by the way. And so, if you want to live in the VC world, there's probably two locations you're gonna, you know, at least visit. And so, so yeah, it was it was very different, both from an investment lens and also from an entrepreneurial lens.
1: We are talking to Jimmy Turner. He is the author of The Physician Philosopher's Guide to Personal Finance and Determined How Burned Out Doctors Can Thrive in a Broken Medical System. And today we are discussing how you pivot out of the profession you started in and try something new. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. usa.com. That's landroverusa.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. We are back with Jimmy Turner. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and co-founder and CMO of ATTEND, a financial platform for physicians by physicians. And we're talking about how he left being a full-time physician to originally become a blogger at The Physician Philosopher, and now he is working for venture capital in a startup called ATTEND. Jimmy, let's talk about the fact that you still are practicing anesthesia. How did you decide to continue doing it forty eight hours a week or, or two days a week? I should say How did you decide not to leave completely?
0: Yeah, you know there's a couple of things. I think that people have this idea, one that you know <laughs> you come up with this idea and you're like hey you know i'm you know I'm Steve Jobs and Wozniak building a computer in the in the garage, and then like I just took this massive leap into into nothing. I just happened to land on my feet with this you know brilliant idea that was worth billions of dollars later on. Most people right have a steady income in something and they kind of dabble on the side or they got a side gig and they're like, you know what? I want to see if this thing can become successful. That is what I did. I had a secure income. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to work full time. I'm going to do this 15, 20 hours a week. See what happens, right? If it gains traction, great. If it doesn't, I'm just going to stop doing it. And so it, it did. It started to gain traction. So like, it's been this constant balance of like, as it's gained more traction, I've kind of cut back more and more and more from medicine, knowing that financially I could afford it. But I had this foundation, like even to this day, let's say, you know, startup world, 80 to 90% of these things fail. Let's say it fails, right? And I got to go back and, you know, pick up, you know, another day a week doing anesthesia. Like I can absolutely do that. And so for me, part of it was the, you know, the foundation of of being able to have that ability to transition, you know, before I, you know, just took the leap and my family of five and my three kids and, you know, the, the entire community that we've built, you know, is is now at risk because, Dad doesn't have an income anymore, you know that that wasn't really the process that that I wanted to go through, and so it's provided a way to take risks in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do if I just quit medicine. The second thing is is that I actually really I enjoy it. I think that when people have some financial freedom, medicine's a funny thing, and and so is any profession. You know, so this is not unique to medicine. Where it one of two phenomenon happen, right? So like one is you're like, hey. All of these things that have annoyed me before, right? They're on, they're now a choice, right? And so like, this isn't bad. Like I'm choosing to be here. And so like, I can deal with this. Like this is something I enjoy doing. I'm going to deal with the 10 or 20% of things that I don't like because the 80% that I enjoy. And then for other people, they're like, I don't understand why I'm still doing this. This is a choice, right? And like it puts a magnifying glass on the things you hate about your job. And so you end up, you know, feeling that need to completely transition. Now for me, I still enjoy a lot of anesthesia, right? There, you know, there's a lot of procedures, a lot of immediate gratification, a lot of variety. I still enjoy teaching the residents. And so I think that kind of staying connected and keeping my ear to the ground in medicine while enjoying that process has been important for me. And so part of it was the stability of the income. And the other part of it's just that I enjoy doing it. And so, you know, while I always practice, I don't know, you know, I think if you asked me three years ago, I'd be like, there's no way I would ever stop practicing anesthesia. And now I've got to the point where I'm like, well, you know, I can see a world in which I might do that, but, but for now I'm still really enjoying it. It's part of my journey. And so, you know, I've just continued to, to stay a couple days a week.
1: I want to get more granular about the transition itself. You went from Jimmy Turner, the guy who's going to be a program director all in to Jimmy Turner, who's now working two days a week. How do they accept that at your job? Because I imagine a lot of people are saying, I don't know if I can pull back and it's going to be accepted. I don't know if I can remain an employee and yet tell them I'm going to go from full-time to very much part-time. How is that
0: accepted? Man, that's a good question. So the first 18 months, I was anonymous. And so I didn't have a name on my website. You couldn't find it. I was just a physician philosopher. Hilariously, like 15 months into that, maybe uh, one of my residents, I'm working at OR-15. We're doing a case. Put the patient to sleep. Have the patient to sleep, but like you know, there's like this whole kind of just routine. We get that done, and then there's like this pause, and uh, naturally it happens in every case. You know, surgeons are getting ready to do surgery, but they're not quite ready yet. And uh, and so his name's his name's Jake. And so Jake, he's like, hey, so I have a question for you. I was like, okay, what's, you're what's like, oh, <laughs> <Yeah, we're, laughs> this is not going to be good. Yeah, where's this going? And uh, he's like, and if I ask this question and it's not true, then I'm going to feel really stupid. I was like. Don't worry about it, man. Like, it's no big deal. And uh, he's like, So there's a site called the Physician Philosopher. Does that happen to be you? And I was like, How in the world did you figure that out? So, yeah, it was me. Right. And, and so that kind of continued for 18 months, that anonymity. And then I wrote a book. And for me, for some reason, writing a book meant that like I wanted to put my name on it. Right. I spent, you know, a lot of time writing this book. I really wanted it to be helpful for people, but like I felt proud of it. I wanted to put my name on it, you know, and I, I thought that there's nothing wrong with that. And so, that said, it, it provided this moment of like, what do I do, right? My employer is now going to know that I have this business. They may or may not like it. What if they say, hey, I need to shut this thing down. And at that point, it gained some traction. And so I, I really didn't want to do that. Well, I approached my chair and uh, my boss, you know, and said, hey, so what if theoretically I had this blog and I'd written a book and, you know, I was doing this thing on the side as a business, what would you say about that? And he's like, yeah, I think it's great if if you're doing that well and it's it's bringing notoriety to to the, the hospital. You know, I work at Wake Forest, right? And so he's like, hey, if it, if it brings notoriety and, you know, people start noticing that one of our faculty members is really entrepreneurial and doing these really cool things, it provides you opportunity to go and speak and to represent Wake Forest in the Department of Anesthesia, why not? And so he was actually a really forward-thinking person about it. Now, on the back end of that, and I don't know if this is just true in medicine, Jordan, but like... There's at, at Wake, there's something called a conflict of interest and a conflict of commitment policy. And so the conflict of interest is basically, you know, this idea that, like, hey, you know, you're teaching students and residents and stuff. And so we we don't really want you running, let's say, a pharmaceutical business and and then telling them that, hey, this drug's the greatest drug since sliced bread and impacting the way that they practice. Cause obviously that's a big conflict, right? As a patient, you don't want that. As a doctor, it shouldn't be happening. But then there's an interesting one, conflict of commitment. They're like, "Hey, anything that takes away attention that you'd be providing to our institution to do your job here, like we we don't want you doing that." And I was like, "Well, like by definition, like this is something on the side. Like it is it is definitely doing that." But then when I started cutting back, I could say, "Hey, these are the two days a week that I'm giving to this institution. These other three days of the week, I am not right." And kind of cleanly separating those two things, and it's always just had to be approved by my boss. And so i you know on my second chair now, it's never been an issue. I've definitely thought about it because we have an interim chair now. So if the third chair comes in and takes issue with it, it's going to be an interesting conversation, but to to date that hasn't happened. So honestly, if I could go back, I probably would have just kept it above board the entire time, you know, instead of having the anonymous, you know, kind of name to it being worried about what my institution would think. But yeah, there's definitely a conversation. Like what does your employer think about this stuff, right? You're, you're not just a representation of you, but also of your employer. And some employers you can imagine are not going to want to have this uncontrollable thing out there that, you know, may not look good for them.
1: So let's switch the viewpoint. We've been talking about what your physician employers felt about you going part-time and working for another business or creating your own business. What about the view of the startup world? How do they look at people like you, physicians? So you do not have a formal business training. You didn't get an MBA that I know of, right? Maybe you did and I'm wrong, but yeah. So you don't have an MBA. So like how does the startup world look at people like you who are passionate about an idea? Maybe you have you have deep
0: understanding of one field like
1: medicine, but you've never run a business before. Do they accept you?
0: Do they celebrate you? Yeah, so it depends. You you have to bring an expertise of some kind, right? And so a lot of doctors work in VC even without an MBA. And they're there, you know, they're working on biotech, they're working on pharma, maybe they're using their undergraduate degree in, you know, bioengineering or what have you to to provide insight and ideas. So that's one way to kind of get introduced into VCs using your medical expertise, just like you would for medical malpractice work. So, you know, any expertise that you have coming from a career, whatever that might be, if the VC confirm can use that, they're going to they're going to say, hey, great, this is this is a skill set we feel like we could use to be an advisor or what have you. There's obviously the founder route where you start a company, right? It's successful. You sell it right. And it's worth you know millions of dollars. And all of a sudden now you have experience operating a business. That was a startup in the you know venture capital world, potentially when it was acquired. and so that that is a stepping stone into the investing VC side itself. Some people go back and say, "Hey, I want to found another company." but some people say, "Hey, now that I've done this, I actually want to be on the other side of the table and be looking at companies and deciding if we want to invest in them or not you know vetting deals, which they do all day. And so you know it, it is an interesting transition. The third way is and it's because I didn't know VC existed. Is running a solopreneur business, or you know, even an entrepreneurial business where you have people working for you and with you, and making that successful. And so for me, that was kind of the the third option was what brought me into the VC world because they saw, okay, he's used to managing a team, right? I took five thousand dollars from a medical malpractice case, turned it into six hundred thousand dollars annual revenue. So I knew how to grow a business. I was not, you know, formally trained as an MBA, but had, very much had real life MBA, quote unquote, training. But yeah, it, it really. It does depend on your experience and your background and your expertise.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the end game. You obviously have a passion towards what 10 does, right? This idea of providing disability insurance and actually creating a financial hub, it sounds like for physicians. But that not ne- might not necessarily be the end goal of the people providing the money, right? Maybe for them it's to package it up and sell it. Is there some tension there between what you as now a co-founder and CMO feels compared to maybe where the money's coming from?
0: Yeah. You know, there's always this, you know, constant tension and conversation and tension, probably not the right word, but conversations between, you know, the board. Cause when, when you're a VC corporation, right. Corporations in many States are required to have a board of advisors. And so that advisory board, they technically own the company, right? So you could be the CEO of a company. This happened to Steve jobs, by the way, and get fired. (laughs) Right. So like you're quote unquote running the company and the board's like, Hey, we think you're doing a really terrible job and they just get rid of you. And so you are in a lot of ways trying to serve your customer while also trying to appease the board. And you, you may or may not agree with what they're doing. Fortunately, you got a really good board. So that hasn't happened too much, but you know, in terms of the, the end game, yeah, if if they decide that they want to sell, honestly, because of my personality, it would not be the end of the world because I've recognized at this point that every two to three years, I'm going to pivot. I'm going to pivot, right? I would be shocked if five years from now, I'm still, you know, running a 10, to be honest with you. Now, if it's wildly successful and there are new opportunities within a 10 to pivot, I could see myself doing that. But, you know, I, I, I blogged for 18 months, right? And then I started, you know, podcasting and writing books. And then I, you know, transitioned to coaching. I did that for a while. And then I transitioned to, you know, the VC world. And so it's been six years, I've done five things. And so knowing that, honestly, that doesn't really scare me. If that makes sense, because I know there's going to be some other door that's going to open that I'm going to be able to pivot to, whether that's in the in the physician space, the VC world, investing side of things, or you know maybe back in medicine. I, I have no idea, and I'm constantly looking for opportunities and trying to assess the situation and seeing where it might go. And so, so for me, that that's actually pretty exciting, right? That's that's one of the other reasons I love the VC world is there's constant change, and and that to me is an appealing thing.
1: Yeah, it really hits me as you're saying this, this idea the pivot, what you enjoy so much about it just isn't available in bread and butter medicine. Like a lot of what we do in medicine. And again, I think this goes the same for CPAs and certain type of lawyers, et cetera. Like if you're a real estate lawyer, you know, you're doing closings and you're doing contracts and you're kind of doing the same thing over and over again. But some of us have other callings and we need some of that variance. And so it sounds like you were destined to step away from medicine at some point based on your personality, maybe what
0: suits you more? Yeah, it's actually really interesting. So, so you know, I've actually, and I've shared this with you before, I've got a reading disability, I'm dyslexic. And so, you know, I've actually been reading this book. It's called The Dyslexic Advantage. Really, really interesting book. And one of the things that they talk about in terms of, you know, just natural propensity for people that struggle, and struggle is not even the right word. The reason it's called Dyslexic Advantage is because there are struggles, but there are also advantages to being dyslexic. And one of them is is that big picture interested in multiple things can't really nail down one thing because dyslexic people tend to be really good at global big picture complex problem solving, which is definitely my expertise. Now, if you want me to tell you your name or your birthday or memorize details <laughs> or, or spell, I'm not your guy. And so, you know, for me, like reading that book really validated my experience, just because I have been interested in 47 different things and. I can take what I, you know, I read in psychology, you know, and, and you know, read about you know Milgram's experiment and apply that to burnout medicine, which is you know, one of the things that I did in the book. And I love taking different pieces from different areas, philosophy or religion or you know, name it, and then applying it to, to medicine or to the startup world or to what have you. And so it, it really is, you know, I mean, I guess you could even say like a, a structural personality level, very much who I am, which I've I've you know learned to embrace. And that's why like a lot of people are worried about the pivot. I not only embrace the pivot, I like it. And so, but for me, the first couple of times that I did that, it was scary. Like, is this thing that I'm jumping to, am I going to land on my feet? But yeah, it's it's, it's 100% a personality thing for sure.
1: People who are listening right now to this conversation and they're connected to what you're saying. They're like, I am now in a job. I like it, but I don't love it. I feel like I have other callings, other things to do. What's like that first step to start
0: moving in the right direction to maybe creating more of a life like you've created? I think that there are, you know, a, a few things, right? So you have to be practical, right? So if you're currently making an income, you're currently living off of it, you, you do have to kind of figure out like, hey, does this opportunity provide enough, op- you know, of an option in the future to create the kind of income I need to sustain my lifestyle, otherwise I need to change it, which is also fine, you know, but there's kind of that profit potential piece of things. But probably more important are the other two pieces, which, you know, I call these like the three P's, right? So passion, propensity, how good you are at something, and then the profit potential. And so, you know, if you are thinking through an opportunity, you're like, hey, I want to consider the side gig, which may at some point become my main gig. How passionate are you about it? So to your point earlier, you know, when you start a business, right, I I didn't make money. And I don't know, Jordan, if if you know what your experience was, but I didn't make money for like first 12, 18 months in my business when I started it. And yet I was putting 20 hours a week into this thing, right? that is carried by passion like you you need to be able, willing to help people and to do something and to provide a service honestly for free when you start a business you know so that passion really carries you particularly in the early stages and then you know the second thing is you know let's say propensity how naturally good are you at something and and a lot of people think they have an idea of what that is but i think a more helpful way to go through that process is to go to people you love and say hey what am i good at right like what, what what do you see my skill set being are there certain things that you would come to me to ask for advice for that you may not go to other people right and so a second way to kind of think through that is to say okay well what is easy for me that is hard for other people right so i just mentioned you know for me that's complex problem solving you know advice people have come to me for advice my entire life since as far back as i can remember but people do not come for me if you want to know some like esoteric you know, mechanism of action for some drug or like some random medical fact. Like I'm not your, I'm not your guy. Now, if you're dying, I can figure out why and help you. (laughs) But like, I just, I'm not a detail oriented person. And so like, I was not going to become a CPA. I was not going to become somebody who's going to be a chief financial officer at, at anything, right. At a business, like that's just not going to be my skill set. So find out what you're passionate about, find out what you're naturally good at your propensity. And then there is that practical side of like, does this provide the opportunity to make enough money for you to be able to live the kind of life that you want to live. I like
1: that passion, propensity and profit or practicality. Really, I think sums up a lot of what we've talked about here today. We are changing, evolving people and this idea for most of us that we are going to spend five or 10 years training at whatever we do, and then do that for the next 30 or 40 years, maybe fits some of us but probably not the rest of us. We like to learn and grow. The problem tends to be that most people don't have the courage to take those first steps. And so what I really like about this conversation is I feel like you've given us an idea of what some of those first steps can be. This idea that you can slowly transition, you can find what you're passionate about, find what you have a propensity towards, and start doing things that really fill you up, maybe in a way that your current job doesn't. I want to end this episode the way and every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where people can find you. So you are CMO and co-founder of Attend. You've written two books. You have Money Meets Medicine podcast. What does the future look
0: like? What do you see happening in the next year? No, that's a really good question. And, you know, obviously hoping that a10 continues to succeed and we get to keep helping people but it's the startup world there is a clock and so we'll, we'll see how that goes you know so that's going to be obviously a big pivot for me otherwise it's probably going to be finding another opportunity you know if that doesn't work out and if it does work out fantastic can't wait to you know continue what we're building because i've learned i love to build i do not like maintaining so that 30 year idea like that like i could not do it <laughs> just couldn't do it but i love to build so i'll be to building something else. you know, right now, right now, another book's probably not in the in the pipeline. I don't really see that you know, coming right now, I have to come up with some other idea that I'd be insanely passionate to write about. So for me, it's going to be that pivot, right? Does it then succeed? Let's go. let's build this thing. let's get it to where it needs to be. or I need to pivot to something completely different if if you know the the startup game does what it does 80 to ninety percent of the time. and if people want to contact you directly, is there an easy way for them to reach out? Yeah, so you can either reach out to jimmy at helloattend.com or jimmy at moneymeetsmedicine.com. Either of those will be a good way, or you can just DM me on Twitter. Jimmy Turner, thank you so much for coming again on to Earn and Invest. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan. Pleasure as always.
1: That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. It's not a coincidence that the episode today on Thanksgiving Day is with Jimmy Turner. The reason why is I've been thinking a lot about what I'm thankful for. Of course, that's what everyone does on Thanksgiving, right? We think about what we're thankful for in our lives. And I wanted to call out a number of people who've played an important role in my life, not by specifically giving you their names, but talk about the roles they played. In fact, the only name I'm going to mention is Jimmy's because Jimmy Turner and I, we met at the beginning of my financial blogging career And him and I interacted quite a bit in those early days. Before I had a podcast, before I had really left my job, before I knew anyone in the financial independence community, Jimmy and I would go to each other's blogs. We'd leave comments. We even talked on the phone a few times. In fact, the first FinCon I went to, that is a big financial media conference, I roomed with him. And I realize on a day like today, on Thanksgiving, how many people have played a huge role in me being where I am today. So without saying specifics, without calling out specific names, I'm just amazingly thankful. I'm thankful that in 2014, a physician called me and had me review his book. I'm thankful that that book changed my life and I was able to learn about financial independence and start to get the privilege to pivot out of my life in medicine towards something I found that was more meaningful. I'm thankful to all the bloggers out there who, when I started my financial blog, would comment on my posts and I would comment on their posts. And that was our de facto community. I'm thankful for all the people who create these amazing conferences. I went to a conference at the beginning in 2018 I met some really important people, and that conference and those people really gave me the courage... To start to leave medicine and do what I wanted to do to use this financial boon that I had to start living the life I wanted to live. One of those people I met at that conference convinced me to start a podcast. And him and I started a podcast. And through that podcast, I've met countless people who've become important in my life people who've become business partners, people who've become creative partners. One of those people actually owns part of this podcast, and I get to work on his podcast too, and through him, I've met some incredible, fantastic people. One of the people who I interviewed for this podcast, who I found out later was a big fan of my writing, pushed me to write a book, looked at what I was writing in my blog, and said, you have a unique voice as a hospice doctor, and coached me then through the book writing process. All of this happened because the generosity of a community that had started to build around me when I started to do something that was intentional and purposeful. I don't think I would be where I am today. I certainly wouldn't have had the courage to leave medicine and I wouldn't have built this wonderful community around me if it weren't for all of these other people. These other people who played... A big role in my life. And I guess that's what I'm hoping that this podcast and my book, Taking Stock, and my financial blog, Diversify. I'm hoping that this content can help you in the same way that other people helped me, that my voice can help you decide to make some of these big decisions, that you can feel the support and the camaraderie that I've always felt from the personal finance community. And that it can spur you to take action. Because I think a lot of us listening right now know what we want out of our lives. A lot of us have figured out what is serving and not serving us. But figuring out is a far cry from taking action. And I think that's most people's stumbling block. And so my suspicion is that community and encouragement are the antidote to inaction. And the way you get community and connections and encouragement is that you find communities like these. So I hope Earn and Invest is part of your community. I hope my words, my book, my blog, I hope it helps spur you to start doing the things you really want to do. And I encourage you to write me or leave a voice message and tell me about your journey And how you're taking action. Because ultimately, that's the goal. It's to take the lives we have, especially if they're not exactly what we want, and turn it into the life we all know we could live. (laughs) So as the after show, I just kind of... We, you and I chat, and I kind of put that up as part of the after show. Is there anything we didn't talk about, kind of about your journey, about learning to pivot away from medicine, about entering the startup world, anything we didn't really get into that you
0: think is important? Uh, No, you know, I I don't think so off the top of my head. No, I, I think that that idea that I really wanted to hammer home is... That you don't have to take that leap of faith, right? You don't have you don't have to pull the sore and cure leap of faith, right? Which is where yeah. that that you can transition, yeah, yeah. That, that that having that foundation while you kind of take a leap, so that you can actually, it's it's like having you know, like you're scaling a mountain, right? Like you, you you can you can rappel back down if you need to, right? You got the you got the anchors and all that stuff in the in the mountain, so that you're protected while you're trying to take some risk. So for me, I think that that was freeing and allowed me to take some risk that otherwise would have scared me.
1: Yeah. I think what's been really nice is, you know, you and I have known each other what since about 2018 and I've got to watch you evolve from full-time academic physician, very much involved in teaching and residency, et cetera, to blogger and solopreneur and coach author. And now kind of that next step to venture capital. It's been really interesting kind of watching you grow and, and, You know, when I talk to you, I don't see someone I don't see a physician. I see someone who actually sits very comfortable in the venture capital startup space. Um, So what
0: what was that? I identify much more as an entrepreneur than a physician at this point.
1: Yeah, which is funny because I identify more as a writer than a physician at this point. And it's just, it's a very interesting, and I think we both kind of went through that over the last five years, is that kind of the de-identifying with being a physician, not that we don't enjoy it, not that we don't want to spend some time doing it, you as an anesthesiologist and me in hospice, but the building a new identity around something else, which I think is, yeah, I mean, it's a big part of this is, coming to terms with that it's like i'm going to change not just my job not just how i make money but i'm going to actually start pivoting my identity
0: yeah yeah no, i i agree and 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 honestly part of that identity shift for me was when i i did have more free time that actually became a huge struggle and so i i think that the problem that a lot of people face that i know i know you talk about all the time you know in terms of like having that purpose that connection that identity <laughs> for me like i lost a lot of that, when I all of a sudden had more time, and so you know, I think that's a phenomenon that most people experience when they get to financial independence, they retire, and they're like, "What yeah. do I do with my life?" And like I experienced that when I was like 33, and it was depressing. Like I, I honestly didn't know. And so, for me, watching your journey has actually been really insightful because it's like you know, you could hang it up and just you know live your life and brew beer every day if you wanted to, but you don't, right? Like you, you still create content. You still do podcasts, like you still, you know, serve the world in a very meaningful way. And so I, I, I've really enjoyed seeing your back half of the journey in terms of, you know, maintaining, you know, that new identity and, and continuing it, even though at this point it's a choice.
1: Yeah. I, I see this really commonly, right. As, as you step away from one identity, there's a pause between you start really embracing a new identity and that pause is the hardest time. I mean, it's, it's, it's painful. And a lot of times I guess if we could look back and do it over again, we'd be like, oh, I would have built the new identity along with the old one, right? I would have slowly built it in so it wouldn't have been traumatic, but that's not kind of how human nature is. And especially, nope. especially if you figure out your finances, because that like gives you permission to drop one identity, but doesn't necessarily help you build the other one. Nope. And that's like that treacherous period that I think both of us had to kind of figure out. And it's very uncomfortable. I mean, oh, it's, fuck. it's, it's
0: very uncomfortable. Yeah. I did not enjoy that at all, but I, I, it did give me insight for, you know, the future and, and, and honestly talking to people like, Hey, you know, it really is like people say this, but it really is important to not retire from something, but to something like you have to have purpose. And, uh, but the journey of finding that and being okay with it, I think is really challenging. And, and honestly having free time and like being okay with that, like just being free time for me, like being a productive person. Like I was always, you know, for two years, if I wasn't doing something productive, like I was wasting my time. And so like the idea of giving myself permission to do things that were not productive, I was actually really, really challenging.
1: Do you remember the point where you like completely de-identified as a doctor? Cause I know for me there was, you know, there's a very definite point where I Googled my name, And Google like gives you categories. And what came up was writer. Like it, like right up the top, it said Jordan Grummet. Like I searched my name and it said like writer. And that was Google generated, right? That wasn't something that was like pulling from a, a post somewhere. It was just, and I was like, and I realized how happy that made me. And I'm like, oh, this is what it feels like to be really connected to what you're doing in your life. And I didn't have that same connection as a physician. Like it didn't bring me that same joy. Did you ever have that moment where you're like, oh, now, now I'm doing the right thing or now I'm there?
0: Yeah. For for me, it was very concrete. It was financial. It was like, oh wow, like this is a real thing. Like this can actually someone's paying me for this. (laughs) It's (laughs) weird, right? Cause like you're like, oh, this is a business, but it's like just kind of this thing that you created. And so, like, what what defines quote unquote a real business? And so, like, when I got to the point where I was like, wow, like, I'm actually really helping people solve problems. And this is making money that, you know, I can support my family on. Like, that was like, wow, like, I've created a new professional identity. And then, like, it came, like, this waffling. And for me, like, that was kind of very clear, you know, hit six figures revenue. And then after that, it was very much a gradual, like, well, medicine opportunities are going down and entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. opportunities are going up. You know, so... It, uh, it became more gradual after that. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunchDailyCrunch.com